This is Talking Asset Management with KPMG. And today, we're talking about the new SEC rule proposal for private fund advisors. Hello, and thank you for listening to Talking Asset Management with KPMG. I'm Matt Giordano, Deputy Leader for KPMG's Public Investment Management Practice and a partner in our Boston office. I'm excited to speak with Sean McKee, our National Leader for Public Investment Management, about the SEC's new proposal for private fund advisors, which, if enacted, will mean sweeping changes for the industry. Sean, how are you today? I'm doing great, Matt. Well, Sean, let's get right into it. Can you start off with a high-level summary of the rule and maybe walk through some of the key points and the most meaningful challenges that advisors will face with this new rule? Yeah, certainly. And, you know, you talked about how impactful this is. It really is. It's it's probably the most significant regulation impacting private fund advisors that I've seen since the implementation of Dodd-Frank and the resulting regulations from that. So, but when we talk about what are what's in here, so there's four major provisions for those that manage private funds, and then there's one that impacts uh, all advisors. Going through the four majors that impact those that manage private funds, the first one's really around quarterly statements. So there's a requirement around quarterly statements that would be delivered usually within 40 to 45 days from quarter end. And they dictate, that rule dictates the content pertaining to fee and expense disclosures and performance disclosures. The second of those four items really pertains to mandatory private fund audits. The third then talks about the requirement for an advisor-led secondary transaction uh, to involve attaining a fairness opinion. And then the fourth pertains to certain activities that, if this passes in its current form, will be prohibited, regardless of where the investor otherwise consents to those activities. It also includes, for those not, for a non-prohibited activities that create preferential treatment, for, for example, different fees for different investors, that there would be a disclosure requirement. And then finally, the fifth item that impacts all the advisors is that the annual review uh, by the advisor of their compliance programs now needs to be documented in writing. Thanks, Sean. I think I think that was a great overview. Um, one thing that you mentioned is the quarterly statements in that piece of the rule. Can you go into a little bit of detail about the quarterly statements and what will be required and what folks should be aware of? Certainly. So think about the quarterly statements as having uh, two primary parts, the fee and expense section and then the performance section. And by no means do they have to be presented in in that order, but those are the two sections. So the first thing on fees and expenses, it's at the fund level. So you're not giving individual investor fee and expense summaries. This is at the fund level. The other thing that's very important about these fees and expenses that's going to be surprising to some is the look-through nature of the fees. So it's just not fees at the fund level, but it's fees at the fund level, at intermediary levels. For instance, if you have master feeder structures or you just have SPVs, it includes those fees. And then for private equity and real estate, or people who invest in, in private equity or venture capital real estate, it also includes any portfolio investment 
level fees that are paid um, to the advisor or its related parties. Sean, I think that that's a great point because this is something that we saw the chair talk to uh, talk publicly about a number of times. And it seems like there was a focus from the SEC commissioners around the fees that are for, for the private equity industry, at least around the fees that the advisor were, was getting from those portfolio companies, because those fees don't run through the funds. And there was a view that there wasn't enough transparency. So we can see what he said in some of his public speeches really come to fruition as part of this rule proposal. That's right. Absolutely. And the interesting part is when you get to how you present those fees in this rule, those really are broken out between those that are either directly or indirectly paid or go to the advisor and its related parties. And they have an an expansive uh, definition in the rule of related parties. Uh, And then all others. The other thing is, is those fees and expense disclosure will be detailed by category uh, and provide lots of granularity and lots of transparency. Uh, So uh, those are key items. And the other thing is it includes also any offsets and and rebates, including if, if during the period you didn't have an offset or rebate, but there's offsets or rebates that you're carrying forward to future periods, you have to disclose what you're carrying forward. On the performance side, for liquid funds, it's net total return on annual basis since the fund's inception and on a quarterly basis for the current year. And think of liquid funds as those that invest in in liquid securities. Uh, You're more marketable fixed income and uh, public equities. Um, And then they differentiate the performance for illiquid funds. And illiquid funds, think of as your typical real estate, private equity, venture capital funds. Now, we all know there's also hybrid funds. The rule acknowledges that and says you may have to consider which one's correct uh, presentation or better presentation. So um, they aren't prescriptive on the hybrid funds. They just want you to think through it, document your rationale, and do what's in the investor's best interest. But for the illiquid funds, they would have to show internal rates of return as well as multiple of invested capital. And they have to do that both gross and net. And then you also break out in the gross return, the gross returns only, the unrealized versus realized. So you have to break that out. And then when you're calculating the growth, when you're calculating the returns period, you do that without the impact of fund-level subscription facilities. So if you have a fund-level subscription facility and you're using that to invest in a portfolio investment and you're not calling capital, you're now going to treat that as though you called capital in the IRR calculation. By the way, that's different than U.S. GAAP requirements. So just be cognizant of that. And those are the big things with performance. Sean, I think your point about IRR is an interesting one because, again, this has been something that the SEC has talked about publicly, specifically when you're using um, you know, a bridge loan or something to be able to, to I, I won't say boost the IRR, but it does increase the IRR. Um, and what we've seen is folks just disclose and explain the calculation of IRR, and it seems to be okay. 
you could tell again from prior speeches made by the commissioner that he didn't love the idea of the way that some private funds were calculating their performance. So now we can see this again stick out. And it was really about that subscription facility that's being used prior to the to the call of capital. Yeah. And the the other part is, is you don't get the benefit of basically the the leverage you're able to employ, but you also don't have to include the expenses, the interest expenses, any loan origination costs in the calculation either. So it, it considers both. So Matt, I've got a question for you. What are your thoughts about the private funds audit rule? That's a pretty interesting one. It is. And I think the SEC was correct in the fact that they laid out a number of reasons why an audit is more important than a surprise exam. And the key in my mind is around valuation and then the reliance on the returns, some of the fees, although some of those fees, remember, in an audit may still be immaterial at at the overall fund level, but it, it certainly is more useful than a surprise exam. Generally, I think most folks already get audits for the private fund. I don't think that there's a lot that are relying on the surprise exam. I also find it interesting that the commission didn't get rid of the liquidation audit. For a number of years, they talked about getting rid of the liquidation audit because it does eat at the remainder of the value that's left in some of these private equity entities that are at the end of its life. I I thought that that may disappear, but it didn't. Another item that I find interesting is that you need to be SEC independent as an auditor. Um, So they kind of get rid of the AICPA independence for this rule, and they talk about SEC independence. You need to be registered and subject to inspection by the PCAOB. And if you look at some of the recent rulemakings, really the Division of Investment Management is the only place where they still require you to be registered with the PCAOB and inspected or subject to inspection by the PCAOB. If you look at Reg A plus and some of the other regulations, they kind of, they don't use that same language. I find that interesting. Um, There's the prompt disclosure requirement as well. So, or the notification. So if you have a modified opinion, you need to let the division of exams know. If you resign within four business days, you have to let the division of exams know. Um, I think the resignation is interesting because what we see sometimes is a U.S. firm resigning or having a member firm take over. So is that a true resignation, right? It's, It's a different member firm, and I think that that needs to be clarified as well. And the last thing that I would note is that you don't have the same 120-day requirement to get those financial statements out after the audit that you do in the custody rule. It talks about prompt distribution of the financial statements versus 120 days. So I I found that interesting as well. Sean, I'll I'll switch gears a little. You talked about some of the prohibitions in in the rule. Can you just talk about those at a high level? Yeah, I'll talk about prohibitions, things that are prohibited, activities that are prohibited, as well as um, other preferential treatment. So there's certain items that are just outright prohibited under this proposed rule, uh, regardless of whether you the where the investor would consent to them or not. And I'll just rattle off uh, the bigger list. So fees for unperformed services, for instance, in private equity, accelerated accelerated monitoring fees would be prohibited. 
Uh, reducing advisor callback for taxes, big one, uh, would be prohibited. Uh, limiting or eliminating liability for advisor misconduct is in the no-fly zone. Uh, then there's certain non-pro rata fee and expense allocations uh, would be in there. Um, charging the fund for an examination or an investigation by a governmental or regulatory bottle, body, I'm sorry, uh, would be in there. Uh, charging the fund for regulatory and compliance fees of the advisor is also prohibited. And then finally, borrowings um, from an investor in the fund uh, also prohibited. Uh, and those prohibited items, the important thing as you and I were talking about this, Matt, is that's not just for private fund advisors that are registered. That's for registered and non-registered private fund advisors. So if you're a venture capital firm, you're using, you know, exemptions uh, from registering, uh, this still applies to you. Yeah, I found that interesting as well, Sean. And when you talk about the fiduciary duty piece or waiving your fiduciary duty, I, I, I just wanted to point out that there was an enforcement case a couple weeks ago around this where it appeared that you had a private fund that had what we call a hedging clause in there. And you don't know the details, right? But it was one of the first times I saw this go to enforcement where you have a hedging clause and maybe they didn't have the correct savings clause that, that would um, essentially say that we're not waiving the liability for federal securities regulation purposes. When I was at the SEC, folks didn't seem to care too much about those because it was kind of known you can't waive your federal fiduciary duty. Uh, but now we're seeing enforcement cases on it and, and rule changes. So certainly a, a different view from the top of the house. Yeah, my, my gut tells me that they always knew that they could, they could work their, the staff could work their way through those because they weren't permissible in the first place, but, or, or could be construed as not permissible. Uh, but this just gives them a clearer path than I'm having to, to think about working through them. So the other item that's interesting, items not prohibited, um, but where there's preferential treatment for investors, for instance, uh, different fees. And there, if it's not prohibited, but it's preferential, you have to disclose those preferences. And those disclosures have to go to current and prospective investors, and they're going to be fairly transparent and granular. So that's, that's a significant uh, change as, as well. So that's kind of the preferential treatment rules as well as prohibited items. Yeah, one thing that you mentioned, Sean, that I, I think is interesting, too, is around advisor-led secondaries, right? So the proposal would require managers to obtain essentially a fairness opinion for a GP-led secondary. And I think we've seen the industry trend this way, so I don't see that as a big issue. I think essentially the rules codifying what we're seeing anyways wanted to point that out as well. Yeah, it's an interesting one, Matt, because I've seen it where fairness opinion isn't changed. But what I often see is, is independent valuation. Somebody will hire a valuation specialist to at least go in and value the portfolio. So going a fairness, to a fairness opinion is a little bit uh, more than that. But uh, if, if you were getting independent valuations anyways, 
uh, around those transactions, uh, you've got the, the bulk of work necessary to, to provide a fairness opinion. Exactly. And, and the last thing that I'll mention as it relates to this rule is the fact that there's only a 60-day comment period. I found that interesting, right? Sometimes you see 90 days or, or more. So you can see that the SEC is certainly trying to get everyone's comments as quickly as they can, address them, and move forward. I thought that that was really telling from a high-level standpoint. Yes, and a one-year, if this goes through and, and it's current or, or altered form, a one-year transition uh, provision. So if it goes through in current or altered form, once it, it hits the regulations, you have a year to, to implement and get ready and go. That's right. Well, Sean, it was great speaking to you today about this change to the industry and this new rule proposal. Thank you to our listeners for joining us today. We'd love to hear from you. Please feel free to reach out to me, Sean, or any of our KPMG colleagues if you have questions about this rule or other regulatory items. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Talking Asset Management with KPMG. Be sure to subscribe to this series and visit read.kpmg.us forward slash talking dash asset dash management for more information.